The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Jacquet. Jennifer is an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at NYU. She's interested in examining large-scale cooperative dilemmas like conservation, overfishing, and climate change. She's also the author of the book, Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. Jennifer believes that shaming is a form of resistance that can be used to challenge institutions, organizations, and even governments in order to bring about large-scale change. I spoke with Jennifer online. She was in New York City. So Jennifer, what identities do you lead with? Well, um, especially when I'm doing an interview, I think I'm uh, an assistant professor of environmental studies at NYU, and I'm also part of our animal studies initiative here. I also have a partial appointment in the Stern School of Business and in the Center for Data Science, so I'm interested in working across many disciplines. I'm born and raised in Ohio, and um, but then have been living on the coast sort of since I was 18, 19, so um, I'm one of those recruits from the Midwest. <laughs> That's great. And I lived in Vancouver for seven years, so oh. I consider myself a kind of honorary Canadian, even though I didn't formally apply for the citizenship. Absolutely. You can always come back. It's home away from home. It seems like your work is uh, would fit right in on this coast in Vancouver anyway. Uh, so you write about and study and are interested in large-scale cooperative dilemmas. And I discovered your work through your book, Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool. And I just want to ask you directly, do you think shame is a necessary tool for engaging with large-scale cooperative dilemmas? Uh, Yes, I do. And I think um, that is contrary to sort of a lot of titles with question marks. Apparently, often the title is the answer always is no. Um, And so it was a bit of a, a paradox, I guess. But yes, I, I think it's um, not only necessary, but a sort of um, only only option in a lot of cases in these large-scale dilemmas that you mentioned. So um, with regards to, let's say, climate change or human rights issues, uh, where we're really talking about having a system of sort of global values, which is completely new in the 21st century. It started in the 20th century, but 21st century, we're really going to see, I think, shame put to use even more. So I got interested in it as a tool and, and, and interested in the ways that people seem to be comfortable with it on the one hand and then really uncomfortable with it on the other. And, and I know we plan to talk about some of those. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you about uh, the response you got from your book, because I know the response I get just from citing your book is often um, not terribly receptive. But but before we get there, I know some people already are tensing up at, at framing shame as quote unquote, a good thing. So can I just want to give you a chance to kind of frame your argument here a bit because uh, we might, some people may be conflating what you mean with guilt or embarrassment or humiliating people. So can you just sort of talk about the distinctions between guilt and shame and, um, you know, that spectrum of experience of shame? Yeah. And this is, um, I mean, it gets really territorial. So I just had to lay out in the book sort of where I was the point of view I was coming from. And I think like um, pain, uh, shame is very much an aversive experience. You're not, no one loves experiencing pain and no one loves experiencing shame. You're not going to find people arguing like we should have more of this in our life, but there's no doubt with either a mechanism or tool that is a useful adaptation, right? I mean, I'm certainly glad I feel pain, glad I don't lose my hand on the stovetop, you know, uh, even though I don't appreciate much the actual experience of it. And that's a little bit like shame too. I, I try to avoid it. Um, but if, you, if we step back and look at it as an adaptation, as a mechanism 
for social control, then we can start to see its benefits. Um, and, and that doesn't, that doesn't mean, of course, that all, we should embrace it and hope to experience it. It still means we should try to avoid it. So I um, distinguish sort of between shame, guilt, and embarrassment in the following ways. Um, shame for, in, for my book was about the experience that you have when, you're, when you've transgressed and that transgression is exposed to an audience. Mm. And so an audience is really a, a precondition in my definition. Now, I know that there are other scholars and other thinkers who say, look, you can experience shame on your own, but it was the most useful way for me to think about it as, a, as an experience and also as a tool. Um, and it also then helps distinguish it from guilt, which is something that you do feel, some, some people say you feel alone in the dark. Um, <laughs> guilt is who you are, uh, you know, sort of with yourself at the end of the day. And and then embarrassment's a really interesting kind of distinct um, feeling from shame, I think, in the sense that often an audience is also involved. But what it is is that the transgression tends to not be morally loaded in any way. So, you know, you have toilet paper on your shoe or you're underdressed for an event or um, you slip up and use the wrong term. And that doesn't necessarily say something about who you are as a person. And it doesn't say even something necessarily about your moral orientation. Um, and so I tend to distinguish embarrassment as something that where the stakes are just much lower. And, and a lot of scholars do agree that shame kind of the experience and the tool is, is intended to say something about your whole self, like who you are as a person, which is, is of course, why it's also so, uh, so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well, and I frequently have, uh, whenever I bring up shame, there's another famous writer who is cited and, um, sometimes there's a few. And so I frequently hear people say, well, you know, shame is, toxic. It's about who you are. Guilt is about what you've done. And there's kind of these like rules of thumb now that I think are in the popular consciousness about that, that equate shame with badness because there's been a popular message about shame is I am bad. And um, on the one hand, I absolutely appreciate the usefulness of that tool, but in certain contexts. So I, I, I guess I, I want you know, for people listening to place this definition of shame in the larger context of large-scale cooperative dilemma. And can you uh, also just clarify what you mean by that or what is meant by that term as well? Yeah, so I'm, I'm talking about um, cases where we all have a sort of stake in the outcome, basically, mm-hmm. either because we directly share the same air or water or atmosphere or wildlife um, or because the issue has become so important, like child labor or human rights, um, that it's kind of on the, the global moral agenda. Mm. Um, and those are the kinds of issues that I was tackling in the book. So I think what you're also describing, um, there were a number of books that came out last year on shame, or, or 2015 on shame. And there was, there was a problem with some of them in the sense that a lot of people get concerned about shame, which is a sort of form of punishment. And the real issue that they're concerned about is the disproportionality, that people are, are punished disproportionately to what their transgression was. Mm. And that tends to happen, especially online. Mm. And so my, my goal with this book was to kind of tease out all those things and make more nuanced arguments saying, why do we feel okay in this situation? But we think that Justine Sackow and what she experienced for a single tweet, you know, losing her job and whatever is, is so outlandish. And I, I felt like shame was getting swept into um, other issues that were actually making people uncomfortable. Mm. Like it, they were like saying shame is bad. It was like, no, actually it's the disproportionality that's upsetting you because I can show you these other cases and you say, those are, those are fine. So I was interested in trying to tease those things apart. And as a result, you know, making a, a more nuanced argument is, is never, it's not an easy thing to do. Like, you know, you sort of have to talk about it for 40 to 50 minutes. <laughs> it's hard to do in a single soundbite. And, um, but, but I was trying to, in a way, defend shame against what I saw as a kind of public backlash. Mm-hmm. And so it's so interesting because you, 
started off by saying, of course, none of us want to feel shame. And so we have this sort of evolutionary adaptation <laughs> that makes us averse. And so what that says to me is, okay, so that's a super powerful tool. And in, our, the, in these large sort of moral collective dilemmas, we have to use all of the tools and some of them are going to be very potent and powerful. Um, and yet I sometimes wonder if, because people get so uncomfortable when I, when I suggest that I can only imagine how it went for you. But when I suggest that, I also wonder if, if, if that's what they're responding to is that disproportionality. Do you think that does something in us like sh closes us off? to even wanting to deal with the problem if we think that the tools that we have to use were not sort of socially, even evolutionarily mature enough to use them. Like if we live in a soundbite culture, but we need 40 minutes just to define the yeah. terms, <laughs> then do you yeah. think that that also has a bit of backlash because maybe people don't even want to deal with the subject if it means that we are going to use these tools poorly? Well, I mean, the other option, of course, is just to call it something different so that it doesn't, so that it doesn't trigger that kind of uh, response in people. And one of the ways um, that shame gets complicated is we do call it shaming when we single out an organization um, or a corporation like Exxon for its uh, efforts to thwart climate policy. We are like, oh, we've been shaming Exxon, and even even the corporations are using that language. Um, and what we know for certain is that the experience of a corporation being shamed is really fundamentally different from an individual being shamed. So I, I can't really project. I don't think Exxon doesn't get a spike in cortisol. It doesn't blush. It doesn't want to hide. It doesn't have the, that kind of um, moral emotion, right, as an institution, as a group. And so part of my argument in the book, too, was the way that um, shame scales to the group level in a way that some other forms of punishment don't. And trying maybe in that way also to disarm people about its, um, its, its potency, I guess, or its, uh, its affect. Mm -hmm. what, what else would you call shame? If we were going to use it, do you have some like other little phrase that pays that people might pick up? Well, I mean, social exposure is sometimes just a kind of stand-in um, that may, that doesn't trigger you know that same sort of no 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 no. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's funny even in in the climate negotiations um, at Paris, you know, some people were positioning it as a naming and shaming policy that we would name and shame countries that didn't keep their pledges. Um, and others said, no, let's call it pledge and review, which is a kind of less loaded, you know, in other words, maybe we're just going to point out all the people who did the right thing or the countries who did the right thing. Um, and so, I, you know, there are other options out there, but in part I was taking advantage of how politically loaded the term is because I thought it might draw people into the conversation, you know, and, and get them to think about, you know, why am I uncomfortable with it in this case and not in, in, in others? Mm -hmm. Now, some of the research in your book were experiments with like sharing experiments and things like that. So it wasn't mm -hmm. that you were doing your direct research necessarily with um, scales like yeah. corporations, although, you know, there were some interesting things about voting turnout and stuff. I wonder if um, you could just share, I don't know, just a little bit about some of the experiments that you did that were, were the most eye-opening for you around shame. Yeah. So, I mean, I can describe one I did. Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, my primary interest is in sort of the institutional level. It's very hard to run an experiment that way. So we constantly go back to that individual and it's not actually the you know, for me, what I'm most interested in. So I provide some some empirics around also corporations that have been exposed and for what. And I've um, tried to do more research on that since the book com came out. Um, but in, in our experiment, because also what's nice is if you can kind of demonstrate it in a lab, you know, people then take it as a sort of proof of concept. Mm -hmm. And we had a cooperative game basically where students could give or not to a common pool. 
and they could give a dollar or not at each of 10 rounds. And we gave them the $10 to start with. So, um, and they knew that any money that they earned in the game was theirs to keep. So they're, they're playing for keeps. That money that they donate to the public pool at each round is then doubled and then redistributed evenly among all players, regardless of whether or not you donate it. So it's very much like a group project. They're all familiar with this, where it's like some players could slack and they would still get the A if all the other students made up for them. Um, and what we see, this is called a public goods game, generally is that cooperation tends to be highest in the earliest rounds and, and then erodes over time. So what we did was introduce two different treatments, and, and one was that at the end, we had a, a control condition where everyone was anonymous, and then we also had two other conditions where they um, are playing under fake names, um, and we said at the end of these 10 rounds, we're going to expose um, the two people who, gen who donated least out of the six players overall. And then we had another condition where we said we're going to expose the two players who were most generous out of the six players overall. So we were really testing what the threat of shame or the promise of honor meant to these players in the game. And both, um, both conditions actually led to about a 50% increase in contributions to the, to the common pool. So um, what was great about that, of course, is that, again, that sort of proof of concept in the lab that it would work, it doesn't, it goes very much along with our intuitions. Some of the surprising elements, though, were that um, both shame and honor actually motivated cooperation to about the same degree. And also that um, we actually then played two additional rounds after the exposure. And something happened that was very telling, which was that the students who had gotten the bad reputation then really continued on with that bad reputation and basically completely withdrew their cooperation. Um, and vice versa, the, the, the players who were honored felt obligated to maintain their contributions. So we were worried also, and, or thought this was an indication of the kind of stickiness of reputation. And again, speaks to some of the liability of shame where you don't want maybe somebody to get a, a terrible reputation and then stop caring about whether or not the, what the group thinks or, or whether or not they're really even part of the group. So, um, so that was telling as well. And then there have been a, a lot of other cool experiments done on like um, threats to expose you, uh, your voting uh, record, which you kind of mentioned to your neighbors in a subsequent uh, letter. And that, that threat of shame led to the greatest actually um, percentage of voter turnout ever seen by a single piece of mail, which was an 8% increase. Normally you only see like a 1% increase from a piece of mail. So the, the experimenters were so impressed, but I actually spoke to them and they were like, but in the end also we, we, didn't, we didn't follow up because so many people were um, not pleased with that, with that <laughs> potential outcome. So, it, and this is what we consistently see in these studies as well, is that the threat of shame is the motivator. And then once people have been shamed, what you see is that they, they will withdraw or you'll see at least a short-term effect of that. So it's about saying this is a very effective but dangerous tool. We want to limit its use. We want to really consider when and how we use it and, and put it to its best use possible. Mm -hmm. Well, and you talk in the book about sort of the seven, let's call it like best principles or best habits of yeah. um, how to apply shame. And I think the one that always sticks with me is, I, I think it might even be the first thing is that, um, or one in the first three, that there needs to be the possibility for the transgressor to be brought back into the fold, that there needs to be the opportunity for them to come back into the group. So we can shame, we can use shame to say, buddy, you are way outside what is cool for our community, <laughs> but with uh, repair or remorse or whatever is needed, you can come back in. And that seems to be, you know, and I don't know, that just really stuck with me about, um, certainly when I scale this down to collective dilemmas that are not necessarily transnational, but say national, like mm -hmm. things like white supremacy, things like racism, when you have calling out culture that silences some people or drives uh, behaviors underground, that, that becomes very tricky. You know, mm -hmm. how do we say your behavior is so not on and here's how you can come back into the fold. And I think that that was another huge insight from the book is that shame and honor have this beautiful dynamic relationship, 
but I am wondering how effective shame can be in a culture that isn't very literate with the concept of honor. When I think of hyper-individualistic cultures, honor is kind of not, I mean, status is something, but I don't think honor is something that uh, has quite the potency in the North American culture. And so I, I am curious about um, what you've noticed about uh, that shame honor relationship in collectivist cultures versus more individualistic cultures. Yeah, I mean, I tend to um, be, I guess, a little less um, uh, dramatic about the differences, I guess, than some people are. And that's just because I see that they manifest themselves in different ways. So, I mean, for instance, corporations are tracking their reputation as closely as they're tracking uh, their financial um, profile. And that seems really interesting to me. And, and they're interested in getting good press, of course, and they're very interested in avoiding that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, so corporations are tracking their own reputation so closely. And while you wouldn't call that honor or honor seeking, it is a kind of orientation around reputation that I think is not equivalent, but consistent with the view that I'm taking in the book, that that shame and honor are, are both important. Um, yeah, the, the way that, uh, I mean, I don't see honor as being as useful as a tool in, in certain kinds of dilemmas because we really don't worry about the people who are performing well. Um, I see shame as, as being a, a much stronger option, but it, it really depends on the, on the structure and nature of the problem. But your question is really about um, collectivist versus individualistic cultures. And the shame stuff is interesting. A lot of people have argued, for instance, that Japan has a much stronger shame culture. Eastern cultures generally, in China, there's a lot of conversation around saving face or losing face. Um, again, we don't have that same necessarily loaded language, and it's not as prevalent in our literature. But it does still seem to be a huge part of our culture. Um, but perhaps in the way things are even more interesting is in, in the guilt issue, because in certain Eastern cultures, they don't even have a word for guilt. And so a lot of people have argued there was a re really cool study done by Dan Fessler, an anthropologist at UCLA, and he looked at just kind of what emotions are most commonly discussed in two different cultures, one in Los Angeles and then one in Bengkulu, Indonesia. And in Indonesia, guilt is like one of the most discussed and commonly uh, experienced, so they argue, um, emotions. But in LA, shame is super, super low on the list. Instead, what's very high on the list is guilt. And in Bengkulu, they don't even have a word for guilt. Okay, so, sorry. So actually, you said originally that guilt was one of the biggest things they talked about in Bengkulu, but did you mean shame is one oh, of the biggest? Oh, sorry. Things? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so shame shame was one of the most commonly discussed emotions in Bengkulu, not okay. guilt. They don't, they don't even have a word for guilt. Wow, right. Okay. Yeah. And so um, what's interesting there is that you can argue, as some people have, that guilt has taken the place in our culture of what shame once represented. Mm. And my own ideas around that, of course, are the individualistic orientation versus the collectivist, but also that, you know, um, we don't, we, a lot of us live alone in the U.S. We spend much more time alone than they do, for instance, in their culture. And so these kind of more social emotions um, or emotions you experience in the, among others have diminished relative to the emotions you're expected to experience alone, like guilt. And so there, there are kind of sociological issues there that are interesting too. Mm. So, so I think that also plays a role that you might say, well, we don't, we don't feel that much shame, but a lot of people do feel a lot of guilt. And, and the argument, of course, is that that's a much cheaper um, emotion because it doesn't require an audience and it doesn't require the audience to care. Mm. And uh, yeah. I see. Okay. So that's a really, I'm going to have to chew on that for a while, but that's a very interesting distinction and sort of refocusing of that question. Now, you said earlier you know, we have to acknowledge that shame is a very dangerous tool. So I'm curious when you're thinking about transnational issues, when you're thinking about climate change, um, 
you know, it, what would then be the limits of, of shame? Like, do you really think that, uh, China, for instance, um, would compromise? I mean, I, you can't speak for a nation, I know, but <laughs> do you really think that people will withdraw from these major collective dilemmas? Do you already see evidence of that because perhaps shame has been employed too strongly? Well, yes. I mean, it, for, for instance, I think I cite this case in the book with North Korea deciding to be part of the World Cup. And when it did that, it kind of then motioned toward a desirability to be part of a global community, right? And that year it experienced sort of disproportionate negative attention. Um, and there were a lot of news stories done around North Korea because it was in the World Cup. And it wound up then withdrawing and deciding not to participate in the World Cup after that. Mm. So you do have global examples like that. Hmm. Again, I think the question is what plays out over the long run. But one um, area that I'm interested in is in some cases, you have corporations that are more uh, responsible in some ways for climate change than individual countries. So I'm following this initiative by um, BankTrack, it's called. And what they do is single out, for instance, the banks that are most invested in coal production as the dirtiest fuel. And they'll single out, say, J.P. Morgan Chase as the number one investor in coal around the world. Now, am I really super worried that J.P. Morgan Chase is not going to participate? Um, not not really. I mean, of course, it would be great to have them on board and it would be great for them to change their ways and to divest. But in part, what they're signaling here to consumers, to citizens, is take your money out of this bank if you don't want right to be, to be part of this, but also using them to say, look, other banks, you don't want to be here getting this negative reputation. Hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I understand it is a dangerous tool and it is, there are liabilities but part of shame's power as well is to, to set examples, right? I mean, hmm. a really interesting case in the U.S. that happened after I wrote the book was the shaming of this um, Walter Palmer, the, the guy who shot C Cecil the Lion. Mm -hmm. um, he experienced, I mean, it's, it's, he's one of these cases, inarguably disproportionate punishment, right? Like there are plenty of people that shoot lions all the time in Africa and who have never experienced that level of exposure. But what that incident did, and, and I disagree with the way, you know, the shame was carried out in, in several respects, but what it did was catalyze this moment that I never anticipated, which was real anger and rage around trophy hunting as a phenomenon. So if you had said to me, like, how do Americans feel about trophy hunting? I would say sort of neutral. I mean, I, I wouldn't have guessed. And looking at what happened and even just mainstream media, I was like, oh, wow, this is a real case of, of shaming, signaling what is the norm here? Mm -hmm. how, what is the standard of the group? Mm -hmm. And yes, Walter Palmer um, experienced disproportionate punishment and he was the fall guy. But what it did too was plant a sort of... Um, flag in the in the soil on on where americans stood on the issue and so that's a little bit in the case of of what climate what's happening too is that shame is used almost to stigmatize fossil fuel production or investments in fossil fuel mm -hmm. and and the bank one is the reason why i love it too is that they're not going after exxon mobil because they're like you know what it's a fossil fuel company mm. it's not likely to change its ways but a bank has a choice Mm. and it can take its money and move it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's also very strategic. It's saying like they can, they can within a year or two change their behavior and then we could give them honor. And it would be much harder to do that with Peabody or a coal company. Of, mm. So I think that's also very, uh, again, sort of 21st century thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm curious, I, you know, what you just said is like, okay, and so if they change their ways, if there's some kind of repair that happens here, we could give them honor. And uh, I said on a different podcast, actually, I was being interviewed then, and, and the, you know, the notion comes from your book, um, but it, it, it sort of helped me realize that in a culture that is hyper-individualistic, where perfectionism, or at least the appearance of that is such a high ideal, 
everyone would rather be perfect than reformed because it implies that you had the fall (laughs) from grace. Um, But if there was something we could do to honor reform and repair, that feels like a very potent tool um, for me. So I wonder if you could talk maybe a little bit more about what you think the sweet spot of, of shame might be, if it's not what happened to um, the lion killer, what, you know, what, what would be more appropriate? What are some of the parameters for how we can collectively use shame well? Well, and it's, it's always um, hard to, to figure out that, um, what I would call like sort of dose response Um, you know, it's like a doctor trying to figure out what's the best medicine, how much should we give? Um, it it really does vary. We need to know how much the individual weighs, how they respond, what other medicines they're taking. Shame is very much like that. It's not an easy solution. Um, but we do avoid some of those concerns again, when we're not targeting individuals. So Mm. I think we're far less concerned about, um, whether or not JP Morgan is sleeping at night and feels reintegrated, because again, those are not emotions that a, a corporation, individuals within that corporation may feel that way, and they may leave the corporation if they mm-hmm. feel too too misaligned with the values of the company. Um, or, you know, or they may say this exposure is bogus um, and deal with it that way. But in terms of uh, the sweet spot of shame, regardless, is it's a little bit like, you know, the Goldilocks principle. Um, You want to get enough attention for it to work and you don't want to overdo it because the disproportionality is with any form of punishment, right? Like we're worried we put people in jail too long for marijuana use. It's all punishments deal with that same exact question. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not it's prison, whether or not it's a, a, a monetary fine, right? Like we've seen tons of cases where the monetary fines like $200 for let's say killing an endangered species and it's not a deterrent at all. Um, and so it, in any form of punishment, we come across these, these same concerns. And that was one of the things I wanted to point out in the book too, is that the sweet spot of shame is also the sweet spot of prison, the sweet spot, of, mm-hmm. you know, we have to give all of these punishments that kind of consideration. Mm-hmm. But I, I highlighted in, in my chapter on the sweet spot of shame sort of, uh, the role of the arts, because I, I think that, um, and the role of sort of ridicule and satire, because for some reason, these forms are a little less potent in some ways. They can be very, very attention-getting, but they're not kind of as um, as maybe ostracizing as others. Um, and, and so that strikes me as something that um, we'll see more and more of in the future. I mean, I, I love, and I, I cited in the book, this case where um, the yes man, uh, Jacques Servine, posing as Jude Finisterra, represents supposedly a Dow spokesperson on the BBC. I mean, they they thought he was a real spokesperson for Dow Chemical and apologizes for the Bhopal disaster, Dow Chemical having acquired um, Union Carbide, who, you know, released all these toxic chemicals into, uh, in, from its factory in Bhopal, India. And you know, he, he apologizes and says, we're going to compensate all the victims. And it's this beautiful performance that looks completely legitimate. In fact, I show it to my business and environment students and they, they think it's, they're like, wow, that's amazingly progressive of Dow Chemical. And I'm like, except <laughs> this guy was not with Dow Chemical. And, and he got the BBC to sort of buy into this. And Dow Chemical then had to say, not only is this a lie, but we're not doing anything to compensate the victims. And, and it was a kind of, I, I mean, it was very shaming, but it was also so artistic and, and, and so wonderful that, um, and I'm sure Dow is not pleased about it to this day, but that it, it's almost, it's very hard to disagree with that as sort of, uh, it, you know, it's, it's art as well as, as punishment. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're living in the U.S. and you're living in the under the Trump administration, and we've seen so Don't much of this. Me. With, so, yeah, <laughs> I apologize. Um, you can always come back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm safe anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, we can see satire um, being used. I also find that the satire, whether or not it creates change in the administration's behavior it uh, helps me feel less alone as a citizen. And, and it's interesting, I'm, I'm very curious how your work may have shifted your life interpersonally, because I, I had a 
um, a moment where the light switch kind of flicked for me and I went ballistic uh, at a dinner party at my in-laws house and these, uh, that my in-laws best friends were just sort of casually being racist and I just kind of lost it, like almost flipped the table. We, we to this day call it the racist dinner party. And I ha I suddenly had this moment where I was like, there's no audience here, but I can imagine what it would be like if a, uh, a person of color were listening to you right now and I am humiliated for you. And so I just laid into them and shamed them. And it was super uncomfortable for everyone. And I just left the table. I didn't even try to reconcile. It's all very awkward still. But something happened for me where I realized that uh, as you were saying earlier, that sometimes, you know, there's a fall guy, but it signals to the collective what's acceptable and what's not. And so it's a form of social proof. So when we see satire that is shaming an administration, there's a, a relief that comes for the rest of us who feel powerless um, that I, I personally feel really grateful to all the artists that put themselves on the line and make themselves so vulnerable that way. I'm wondering if as you were writing the book or as you've been thinking about shame and reputation over the years so deeply and doing these experiments, have you had any personal shifts or, you know, how does this show up in your, in your life? Because I imagine that um, you get a lot of pushback. Well, um, I mean, something that I think that this book helped do more for me and um, more of for me, and that I was already sort of gesturing that way, but I really, um, through thinking through shame so much, have decided that I, for instance, I didn't put this in the book, but people say, well, would you use shame on your children? And I wouldn't. I mean, if I have kids, I probably will not use shame. I, I, that's how dangerous I think of a tool it is and how, um, you know, sort of touch and go. And it's not something I would want to do to somebody I loved if I could had another alternative choice. Mm -hmm. um, and it's helped me um, think through like, what are the stakes here? And who is, who is actually making the biggest um, impact on this, on this issue or, or, or global concern or shared dilemma and really trying to constantly direct my focus there. So part of um, shame is, is that it can be very distracting, that um, it can be used also as a distraction, I think, from either the people who are really at fault or the companies who are really at fault or um, even from the issues that really matter. Um, so for me, it's a constantly uh, a kind of recalibration and, and a backing down from trying to, um, you know, just deal with your sort of immediate environs versus a, a much bigger picture stuff. So, you know, they always say like, don't, don't sweat the small stuff. At the same time, like you're talking about, there are things that may, um, like with with my in-laws who are who are lovely but they'll um they'll often I don't eat animals and they often will you know kind of push push back on that and they'll say what um you know sort of what if we could get them to not contribute to climate change and and luckily my my partner steps in and they'll be like but no it's she doesn't think we should eat animals as like a sort of welfare and and try to defend my norm you know um or my standard uh, but I sort of thought like uh, I, I should I should save whatever I'm about to direct to, toward them or say um, for you know sort of Cargill or something, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? You know, because you have to you have to conserve your energy on mm -hmm. these on these points. Mm -hmm. um, but but also it can be it can be um, cathartic, like you said, to to see your values reflected, whether or not it's at a dinner party or at a or on television or whatever. And so it, it's just always, I mean, I think I've gotten more sociological about shame. You know what I mean? I'm too meta sometimes. <laughs> and I, I saw this happen actually after the book came out with this um, really cool effort. I loved it called um, Mantle Shaming. So it was about shaming the all-male panel oh, at yes. events. And, um, and it was crowdsourced and people would just send in a photo, let's say of like 12 men on stage and uh, David Hasselhoff is giving the thumbs up in every photo. And it's, it's a very clever, fun use of, of, again, sort of gender politics. And But then I noticed um, a friend also pointed out they were shaming even two- and three-person panels 
uh, of men. And, and, and an academic actually came up with a, a whole distribution calculator, but like assuming that women represent 50% of the population, which is almost never the case in, in these expert roles, but assuming they do, you know, there's a 25% chance that you have a panel of two men. Um, and so I kind of wrote this, a, a small piece actually for a German outlet, but on the sort of science of shaming too. And that you see that, um, you know, come up, the mantle shaming was a good idea, but I don't know at what point the threshold should exist, but there should be a threshold where you go, well, the two or three person panel is not worthy. The 12 definitely is. And then there's the line somewhere between those. Right. And, and so then I get all academic and people are like, yeah, but what about the emotions? And I'm like, no, there's a, there's a science here. And, um, yeah, I'm that boring person. That's probably a, it's the way it's infected me interpersonally too, is people are like, don't get into shame with her. You know, um, right. it'll be a 20 minute conversation <laughs> and she needed 40. So yeah. She's going to make it super. She's going to talk really fast. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so uh, where is your work on shame and reputation taking you? Like which collective dilemmas are uh, sort of driving your work these days? Yeah, I mean, I continue to work on um, on climate change and overfishing, and uh, I have a new project on the on the wildlife trade. But those have always kind of been in my general interest. I mean, I'm I'm interested in animal issues generally, um, animal welfare, animal rights, and uh, and human rights and and human welfare issues. So the way that those the way that those norms are sort of seeded and encouraged in the the global sphere really is really interesting to me still and like i said you know since the book came out i i started following bank track more closely for the work that they're doing and i'm really following sort of what will happen with the paris agreement because reputation is really built into the mechanism there and um and like this, the issues that come time, sometimes come up, like the mantle shaming. I mean, I'm still, I'm still definitely interested in, in watching reputation. Um, but I, I also am working more directly on some of the practical approaches to solving these large scale problems. Um, not that shame is impractical, impractical, but to the extent that we're even building a computer algorithm to detect illegal wildlife trade online, that kind of mm. stuff. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So interesting. Do you feel hopeful? about large-scale collective dilemmas. Maybe the next book you could write could be on hope because I have a bit of an ambivalent relationship there. <laughs> no, that's perfectly reasonable. And in fact, a student was just in my office saying that he, climate change was so overwhelming to him that he, he was doing a project on it and he was like, I really honestly don't know where to, where to start. And, um, you know, so I said something then that I've been thinking about a lot since and I feel very privileged and hopeful about, which is that so many people for that have fought for things for so long, let's say um, the end of slavery, um, women's rights, child labor, any, any of those issues, they went to their grave seeing no progress on the issues that they were probably really and maybe more passionate or rageful about than I am about these things. And I think that must have been so hard because in my life, my 35 years, I've seen so much progress on the issues that I care about, you know, and, and there still needs to be so much more, or I shouldn't say care about, but work on directly. Um, Cause I care about a lot of things that aren't <laughs> changing too, but the things that I work on, I'm seeing changes and I feel so heartened that, you know, assuming I don't die tomorrow, um, you know, I may die with a major shift in thinking about animals and agriculture or the wildlife trade. And, and that helps me a lot because to think about that privilege to get to be part of something and see it enacted. Um, and I think that will continue to happen. I mean, I'm, like I said, I was even just so impressed with the, the social signaling over trophy hunting. I'm really hopeful, actually, with the general orientation of values. Now, good thing you didn't do this interview in November mm. because I was feeling far less hopeful. But I still think that um, over the course of, you know, life is not exactly long, but it's, it's not four years either. <laughs> um, we will see major shifts. And that's, that's really a, a position of privilege. And I, I derive a lot of hope from that. Mm. Maybe I should have asked you the last question 
penultimately, I should have asked this before, but if you go back, remember something that makes you feel really bad. Oh, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't have to remember. It's there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you personally then cope with grief and rage when you are thinking about these massive, like something you may not, I would argue likely will not see major shifts on in your lifetime, like yeah. perhaps climate change or enough that would yeah. you know, help our children out a bit? How do you deal with grief? Or not in the time frame that I would have preferred. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I would say that um, probably I use one to answer the other, which is if I just sat here alone in the dark, grief would be the overwhelming. I mean, I, you really look around and you look at some of the things and you look at how out of your control they are. And I think the grief is like a tidal wave. I mean, um, and so instead, <laughs> you, you turn the lights on and you face the world. And for me, I really use rage as a very motivating, um, I, find, I find rage sort of focuses my thoughts much more than any other emotion, certainly more than joy. Mm. So I often, I mean, I get really angry about something and I can write a paper almost that instant in a day um, if I'm if I'm that angry. And that's of course why like bad restaurant reviews, right, are fun to read um, because <laughs> because we know rage is, is so motivating. Um, but, but I think, um, you know, one thing I worry about a little bit is how, again, people are saying, you shouldn't feel pain, you shouldn't feel shame, you shouldn't feel rage. It's actually like, well, embrace that moment for what it is and try to turn it into a productive force. So I, I you know, don't discourage my students from feeling those emotions if they can, if they can make them productive um, because I, I do think it's, it's very motivating. And what I'm looking for in the 21st century is who are, who are the villains? Who can I hold responsible? Because I don't, I'm tired of, of blaming myself and where I was born and what I consume because of, you know, just adopting a sort of status quo life. And I, I try not to do those things. But as you know, like, so I don't fly and I don't go visit my family. And I, you know, it's, it would all be self-imposed. Mm. It would all be. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm tired of blaming myself and I'm looking and I'm ready to direct my rage towards something else. And, and I think, you know, the more of us who are willing to do that and the more of us who are willing to do it for very little, let's say, money, monetary reward, the better. Because that's what's so heartening about this administration in the U.S., is if you can find anything, is that you see that a culture that was sort of said was apathetic and so oriented around money is showing up at the airport uh, you know, hiring babysitters to watch their kids while they go protest. And I am like, see, it's not, we're not so bad. Totally. I'm all choked up now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'm really glad that the people who are articulating strategy for us, like yourself, uh, are able to galvanize and, um, direct the flow of, rage and the energy of that into something so productive and show us how it's done. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jennifer. I so appreciate your work and the insights that you brought today. Well, and I appreciate the the 40 minutes needed to talk about it. So (laughs) thank you very much. A juicy topic with so much to chew on. So much so that I think I need to bring in Ruben Anderson for another installment of Rubination. Welcome back to the show, Ruben. Hello there. I'm so glad we finally get to talk sort of more publicly, um, but also sort of jam on the author's thoughts. Like, I was so excited that we got to um, kind of go behind the scenes of this book and this topic because, uh, as you know, I've been a bit obsessed with it for a while. Yes, you have. Yes. <laughs> And we can only get so far, just the you and I swimming around in our little fishbowl. <laughs> uh, so having heard Jennifer talk about shame in this way, what were your thoughts? Uh, well, 
first of all, it was kind of exciting for me. A little bit of plug here for our uh, dear friend J.B. McKinnon. I knew he'd get pulled in Author somewhere. of yeah. the Once in Future World, because I think I first heard of Jennifer Jacquette yes. through, I think... JB talked to her yeah. uh, in his research on shifting baselines, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so how wonderful then that, uh, and as you mentioned, he gave the shame book to you. So. Yes. And I, it's like filled with little post-it note arrows <laughs> in the side. So many notes. I felt like she gave oxygen to the fire I had in me for mm-hmm. shame. Um, I have a whole chunk of thought on shame and behavior change, which maybe we should talk about uh, later if you want. Okay. Um, I So I, I found your conversation with her super interesting. Um, there was just the one example I pulled out. She gave the example of voting, the th- uh, a threat of shame increased voting by 8%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they didn't even do the thing because yeah. people were so... <laughs> yeah. Didn't even expose them socially because people could not stand it. They they couldn't take it. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of conversations. So I've spent a lot of time working in uh, recycling and garbage, mm-hmm. and shame. Meaning you're not actually lifting garbage or recycling. Yeah, you that's spent, right. yeah, I, yeah. Thinking I, and writing and speaking about behavior change around getting people. Yeah, around pro environmental behaviors. I like to call it. So not environmental behaviors. Not I like just, that. Uh, not just recycling and uh, waste reduction, but yeah. also things like Gun water conservation, etc. Let's yeah. be pro. Yeah. Yeah. Pro. Um, so shame is something that's talked a lot about uh, in the blue box effect. The theory is that uh, if you have a blue box on your street, you recycle more than if you're in an apartment building with just a big blue tote. And that's because the theory is there's sort of a shame effect at play. And I've totally felt it. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I've actually tested out? it. And I'm a little skeptical of it. But wow. uh, the Township of Langley, I believe, I did a huge shout out to them in one of my talks because the Township of Langley actually tested using an unhappy face sticker. They tested using mm-hmm. a frowning face sticker, mm-hmm. which I, I felt the continent of North America rock a little bit when they did that. It was Where did so the frowning sticker go? How would you how would they point out the people who didn't have their blue box there? So I think it was um Maybe if they found recyclables in your garbage or something, oh. they would put a frowny face sticker on. Sad, horrible clown <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> picture. Yeah. Got it. So, yeah. So, uh, shame has been discussed. It, as you say, with the voting example, uh, it's something that people are really, really reluctant to use. Super averse. Yeah. yeah. Nobody wants the wah, wah yeah. right outside their house or, you know, in their mail. Nobody wants to be exposed, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so, and that leads right to one of the parts that I found most interesting was her definition. So she said, shame is collectivist, whereas guilt is individual. Uh, and so guilt, because it's individual, it doesn't have the power or the impact of the collectivist shame. So I thought mm-hmm. that was just a super clarifying um, bit of... Mm-hmm. I also, though, you know, so I've been, of course, working, I've been noodling on shame in uh, relation to racism mm-hmm. and that when we call out racist behavior, it's a form of social proof. Mm-hmm. And um, and also um, it, it demonstrates our commitment to developing a different identity, which is one where I am a person who will put up with no bullshit around uh, racism and so to violate my commitment to that would be embarrassing for me. Mm-hmm. So, so I've been kind of using that. But then again, you know, she talks about disproportionality, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Ooh, yeah, humans, we're not great about that." So that's always been the part that gave me pause mm-hmm. um, about sort of promoting, <laughs> you know, public shaming more widely. However, mm-hmm. I think it's an important conversation to have about honor and reformed behavior Mm -hmm. and um i can see now more benefit to uh centering the honor aspect um than i did before because if we can develop a sense of honor in our culture for certain behaviors it's way easier to use shame (laughs) when we need interventions Mm -hmm. so um yeah so i'm still not sure uh how good our culture will could ever be at using shame uh, mm-hmm. as a tool uh, mm-hmm. after this. However, also what she said about it just scales so well mm. that corporations don't have cortisol shoot up when we shame them and mm-hmm. expose their behaviors, whereas individuals do. I was like, okay, well, maybe we could get much better at it with um, governments and mm. um, that sort of thing. Anyway, thoughts? 
wow. Uh, I feel like we need to pause this so I can play the tape back. And because <laughs> <laughs> you just said like eight things, all yeah. of which were super interesting. I've been thinking about it a long time. Yeah. Well, that was actually, this is uh, next on my list is I just wanted to hear you talk about this because you have been thinking about it for so long. Well, I don't want to center myself. I, I really, I just enjoyed being able mm-hmm. to you know, hear from Jennifer Mm -hmm. what her thoughts are, especially since she's spending a lot of time on large scale social problems that Mm -hmm. I think many of the conversations we are having in our society are the wrong conversation to have in the face of catastrophic climate change. Mm -hmm. So I think history is going to prove me right on that. And we'll wish that we had spent a whole lot more time focusing on really how do we apply all of the tools that we currently have and are experimenting with on on that problem because you know mm-hmm. the climate doesn't care even about racism that much mm-hmm. and so anyway i i really liked being able to um add that perspective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, the discussion of honor is interesting i think uh, i w- my gut reaction is that our culture so a sort of a north american settler capitalist individualistic <laughs> Yes. Kind of approach. Thank you for your clarity. Mm -hmm. uh, Is sort of deliberately opposed to honor. Mm. Uh, Like the the measurement of success is more like money and stuff. Mm. Uh, And if you have to do dishonorable things on the way then most of our universities are named after those people. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so And our streets. Yeah, and our yeah, streets, absolutely. right? So, uh-huh. so I feel like it's a pretty long road to yeah. build a um, large-scale and certainly a shared sense of honor in North American or in Western industrialized capitalist Well, and so this is why I think that is the scale... We need to operate at, at at the community level. Right. Whereas we could use shame right now way more mm-hmm. at the larger scale, uh, uh, I think, on corporations, governments, but, institutions. But, but the thing is, the, all those groups are actually really expert at deflecting. Oh, they, yeah. They've all got entire departments uh, dedicated to deflecting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see... Um, such and such an airline will do something bad and then they tweet out an abject apology. If they're smart, they tweet out an abject apology. They don't fight it. But does their business actually fundamentally change? Like, do they actually transform how they go about doing business? I, I'm well, so I sure mean, that's that. what I, I think you should read her book mm-hmm. because there's actually, you know, quite a bit of research in there. Right. Um, I think things do happen behind the scenes mm-hmm. that affect change and policy, which you and I, mm-hmm. I mean, men, we had a buck for every time we talked about policy in our house. We <laughs> buy a house. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We have many, many houses. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so her book really it, it does provide that, and we could go through the bibliography mm-hmm. and look at all of her her studies. However, because they have such great spin machines, they can't let people know that mm. they've changed policy. Right. So anyway, yeah. um, we're we're hijacking yeah. her interview. Was there anything else you wanted to? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I guess, as I said, I would like to hear you talk more about the personal scale. You know, mm-hmm. So you just said we could be using this a lot more in the interpersonal scale, mm-hmm. which is actually where this collectivist experience resides. Mm-hmm. You know, So the power of it being like, oh man, I'm going to look like a jerk in front of these five people mm-hmm. is actually super potent. Yeah. Well, and I think of it personally like a muscle, you know, you know, there's kind of, I haven't done exercise in a long time, but I'm pretty sure it still matters that you have a strong core if you want to have a strong back. That was a big thing for a while uh, in, in the fitness industry. I think it probably still is this idea that if you want to have overall health, you have to have a strong core. Mm -hmm. And so the way I look at shame and feeling like an idiot when I screw up, um, particularly in areas of social justice, because that's where I'm screwing up the most lately in my life, uh, is that sitting in the discomfort of humiliation is like doing sit-ups. I have to do it to have a strong enough core Mm -hmm. to be healthy overall. And so we need, I, I believe, I'll say me, Mm -hmm. I have come to the conclusion that I need to be able 
to fail in public mm-hmm. because there is no good way to be a white settler and dismantle systems of oppression. There's just no way to do it comfortably. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to mess up because I'm so blind to so many things. So I try to not cover my tracks mm-hmm. after I screw up publicly. I try to let, I even, I, I throw stuff out there. So, you know, fairly recently there was that video of the professor on BBC who was getting interviewed and then his kids come in so <laughs> awesome. And then, um, His wife comes in and grabs the kids and she appears to be of Asian descent. And I assumed that was his nanny. Mm -hmm. And so when I reposted it, I said, ah, this is me being racist. Mm -hmm. This is hilarious. The nanny comes in. Oh, wait, it's not the nanny. It's his wife. Mm -hmm. And tons of people were like, oh, my God, I did the same thing. (laughs) Uh, And so that was me actually making space mm-hmm. <laughs> to fail. I didn't have to tell anybody I did that. But that's the way I see us um, getting better with how to use shame, mm-hmm. is showing reformed behavior and being proud of it. Mm-hmm. So I said this in the uh, interview um, where I was the guest with Rachel and Mary Beth mm-hmm. on Confronting Whiteness. I said, in our Western culture of hyper-individualism, everyone wants to be perfect, but nobody wants to be reformed. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to um, offer examples of our own reformation and um, ways in which we have improved mm-hmm. to give other people permission to um, do the same. And, it, and it's super uncomfortable. Even and, and, of course, there's a whole other thing to get into on, like, wanting, you know, social justice cookies for, like, oh, look at me. I'm, you know, there's lots of different reasons why we do this. Uh, not all of them would be great. Human beings all have light and dark. You know, we all have shadow stuff that come up here. However, I think there's so much value in developing the Constitution to withstand a bit more shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the fitness analogy, it really is a no pain, no gain. Yeah. Sort of thing. Totally. Absolutely. Which is why I'm constantly aching. (laughs) You're gaining so much. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully somebody's gaining. That's what we're going for. Um, Anything else before we wrap up? That's a really interesting thing uh, in that you described shame. It's it's almost like you're preempting your own shame by you're sharing it. You're like... Yeah, but you know, I only got to that after getting called out, (laughs) you know, fortunately for me, fairly gently Mm -hmm. and by, you know, really well-intentioned people, you know, I've, I've had people go, what, you know, I've gone to people and said, I I said this thing and why did this person get upset? And the person I was confiding in was like, what the hell did you say that for? What a dumb (laughs) thing to say. And, and then I'm like, what? Uh, Anyway, so I've Uh had those gentle moments of being humiliated just in front of one person. Um, and, and anyway, so I've built it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've built it up over time. But, But it does kind of scale, you know, that we see the things like, uh, you know, the politician that has an affair and then they deny it and then they throw their phone in the river and then, you know, they, they, go through all these all these many <laughs> I'm dredging the river if you ever get <laughs> they, they, they go through all these layers right and uh-huh. at the end of it they're yeah in the you know house of cards they're a lying murdering yeah. you know yeah. whereas if they just said oh yeah I uh you know I was working too hard my assistant no, the first is, thing they would is say totally is, cute and, I am a Shit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and yeah. I'm I, sorry. I, I'm a shit. I'm yeah, sorry. I don't need to know all this. the other stuff. Yeah, like, I, let's just coach you through this in <laughs> yeah, case. No, I'm just yeah. joking. So if like if they just kind of like the faster you own up to it, yeah, and the fewer levels of crap you add on to yourself in the <laughs> effort to not actually go through that pain experience, not actually go through the growth experience. Yeah. Uh it's it's kind of a shame. It seems like it should be easier. It is a shame. <laughs> it is a shame. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for your thoughts and helping me process it all, Ruben. Always a pleasure. And I want to thank Jennifer again for coming on. I'm, I'm kind of a fangirl mm-hmm. of her academic book. Uh, I, let's give a shout out. Where should we shout out to today? I'm going to give you the sheet. Surprise uh, me. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, it has to be off this first page of these many pages of countries I've, yeah, that. Yeah, those uh, ones have already you. been checked. Okay, checked off. Uh, I'm gonna say other regions. <laughs> yeah, like Saskatchewan. There are 37 actually, listeners in other regions. I happen to know that uh, there are listeners in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hmm. Those, they know who they are. Those would be lumped into Canada, which is a is the largest oh, number that's here. The, oh, that is my largest viewership. Yeah. Anyway, enough about us. I want to say hi to all the listeners in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and other regions. And other regions, which I'm going to assume are all the scientists in the Antarctic base. <laughs> That's right. Listening to the Numinous Podcast. That's right. Stay warm down there. And remember, this podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. And if you'd like to be notified when registration reopens in June, hop onto my website and sign up for my newsletter. While you'll be <laughs> while you're there, you'll see the dates for my wilderness quests in 2017. You and me and Ruben bantering just like this, but about even more important things like mm-hmm. your spiritual health and well-being. Get all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.